Well, everybody, let's turn to the scriptures. Um, we have quite a journey ahead of us this morning in the, in, the, in the Word of God. The sermon is entitled, Marked by the Beast or the Lamb. Does everyone have notes? Does everybody have notes? Um, some no, I hear some no's. Um, yeah, could our greeters, some, somebody that works on the greeter team, if you could uh, get some notes, I, I'm going to guess they're in the foyer. And we'll, we'll, if you'll help me remember to raise your hand when they start getting back in with those notes, um, that would be great. Uh, the, the passage would be, if you'd open your Bibles to Revelation 13, uh, we're going to cover verses, verse 16 all the way through chapter 14, ending at verse 20. Um, so as we read this morning, um, I want to ask you to already, would you, would you already prayerfully engage with this moment? Probably we ought, to, we ought to remember to do that all the time. Let's don't just assume that, oh, I'm always ready to hear the word of the Lord. <laughs> I'm, I'm a sleepy person. I can be, I can, I'm a distracted person. So, but more maybe than most days, let's turn and ask the Lord. We want to engage with your heart in this passage. So let's ask God to, to fill us with sobriety about the deception and persecution that comes from a sinful world that's manipulated like crazy by Satan and the strength and wisdom to stand against those deceptions. And so that's in verses 16 through 18. So as we read that, God, give us wisdom, give us strength, help us to, to see the counterfeits and take a stand against them. And then let's ask God for his grace to experience the fresh assurance of our salvation and, our, and, and the joy of our salvation, the amazing grace of our salvation, along with a greater burden to live on gospel mission for him, regardless of the cost. And I think you're going to see that in, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 13. So be thinking about that as we get there. And then, I don't know how many times that we've introduced a sermon by asking God, would you break our hearts? And would you give us tears for those who are still dead in their sin and deserving of the wrath of God? And then, God, would you give us grace to rise up from those tears, to preach the gospel to everywhere we go and to everyone we come in contact with? So I think you'll see why I say those things, especially, especially the issues of judgment and the righteous wrath of God. I don't know what church background you grew up in, but I've heard so many sermons about this that the preacher almost seemed to just kind of weirdly excited to tell people they're going to hell, as though somehow he was better than them. May God give us tears. I think that's his heart, don't you? Desiring that none perish. Would you stand with me as we read God's holy and inspired an inerrant word, beginning in Revelation 13, starting with verse 16. So he's referring here to the false prophet, the beast from the earth. And so that's beginning in verse 16. 
Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song. Oh, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And then another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast at its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Oh, but then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. 
And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Oh, Lord. God, would you please speak to our hearts through the inerrancy and sufficiency and authority of your word. We know you've given us this book to understand it and to shepherd our hearts, to pastor our hearts through it, that we could know you better, be more like you, and be more impassioned to live on mission for you. May you bring all those things about today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I think we've gone far enough in Revelation that I could use this, this illustration, and I think it really pertains to some of the, 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 the bumpy road that we're going to cover today, at least bumpy in terms of how these things have been taught maybe in the past. You know, I'm, so, I'm surprised uh, that some entrepreneurial Christian uh, with maybe questionable theology <laughs> has not come out with a video game about the end times. Got a lot of material to work with, don't you think? I mean, if he tried to interpret all the images and numbers of Revelation literally instead of interpreting it as apocalyptic scripture, it's very important, the difference. Think of all that he'd have to work with. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. A powerful tail that can sweep a third of the stars out of heaven and onto the earth, not to mention an appetite to devour a long-promised baby who would come to crush the head of the dragon. And then throw in a beast that comes rising up out of the sea and threatens people with death if they don't follow him. And to prove he is the miracle man that they should follow, he dies of a head wound and then rises up from the dead. Sort of like the savior he seeks to counterfeit. And then another beast that comes rising up out of the earth that is the power to call fire down from heaven and to make statues that he magically makes come to life just by breathing on them. And that video game could really cause a stir by having the beast trying to stamp his mark of ownership on all the worldlings running around. Oh, you could score points by shooting down the dragon and hunting down the beast. You could get bonus points by discovering where the factory was that made the marks of the beast and destroying it. But the biggest prize would be searching out among all the characters which one of them was the beastliest and could be recognized by the number 666. What a game, huh? I know at least I have the kids' attention. You may be wondering, what in the world? By the way, if anyone, comes, if anyone tries to market this, <laughs> would you give me a cut? Anyway, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So listen, knock that 666 out of action and you can declare yourself the champion. I even have a name for the video game. 
beast hunters. Oh, man, that's amazing. That's amazing. And you know what? I am speaking somewhat cynically and facetiously, or maybe a lot. I'm afraid too many people have mistakenly read the book of Revelation the way I've just described that video game. Or maybe they've avoided reading Revelation altogether because of not understanding all of these characters and what they're supposed to represent and teach us about God's absolute sovereignty, the victory of Christ, the promise of eternal joy that awaits all of Christ's followers, the conflict that does exist between the devil and Christ's people until Jesus comes again, and the righteous wrath that will come upon all who choose to follow in the devil's footsteps. I gotta be honest with you, I'm mad. I'm mad at the thought of how the body of Christ has been robbed of the gift of the book of Revelation. I hope you have the same experience I am. I'm, I am regularly feeling convicted and blessed and inspired and I'm feeling somewhat changed as we study this book. I'm feeling like I'm knowing his heart more and I want to be more like him and I, and I want to live more on mission for him because it's an understandable book and it just kills my heart to think that we've not, I've been here 29 years. This is the first time we've taught Revelation. So shame on me above anybody. I think that this book is supposed to have been a gift all along to the hearts of the church of every generation to increase hope, strengthen faith, and inspire mission. Are we to be beast hunters? Is that what Revelation is all about? The answer is a definitive no. We're to be Christ seekers. That's what Revelation's all about. We're to be Christ seekers. And as we seek Christ, we will have endurance and faith to persevere through persecution. As we seek Christ, we will have biblical wisdom and Christ-like character to recognize false saviors and the lies of the devil. As we seek Christ, we're going to grow in his mission to seek and save the lost so that they will not ultimately endure the righteous wrath of God for their sins. So our main point this morning for this, this amazing passage that's in front of us is that God gives us the wisdom of the word to recognize and reject counterfeit Christs and loving courage to rescue and redeem those dead in sin and under judgment through preaching the gospel. So let's break this down. First, the mark of the beast in verses 16 through 18. We've already seen last week that the goal of the false prophet is to use any deception and any false teaching possible, including a Christless version of Christianity. I was, I was greeted this morning by a brother who was just telling me of an encounter he had with a local church that, that what he was describing, though they have the, the name church on their sign, it just sounds like, I don't, I don't know that you couldn't call this a Christless version of Christianity. Uh, the false prophet wants to promote the worship of idols. 
Um, last week we talked about how he gives breath to the idols, which in our context means he is all about convincing us into believing that our idols can provide lasting purpose and prosperity and happiness. And, and that we don't even need Jesus for that. Or, or you, can, you can have Jesus in your theology, but just as somebody you go to, not because you really want him, you just want the stuff he gives so, so I have Jesus in my, in my purview, but it's only as a giver of the idols that I really want. How many times we, what, is, what does James say? We, we, we ask not, we have not because we ask not. And we, when we ask, we ask with wrong motives. Why? We want to spend the goodness of God on our own passions. So that's, listen, the false prophet is all about that. And that is happening moment by moment around the world, but particularly in the United States. Believing that, 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 that these idols can provide purpose and prosperity and happiness that is enduring. And that's similar, really. Isn't that what the serpent did with Adam and Eve in the garden? You can have all these blessings from God without God. <laughs> it's a great... listen. Christianity cannot be defined as, oh, I believe in Jesus, but really, if you look at my life, if, if, you, were to, you, were, if you were to do a, 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 a hidden camera view of every second of my life for one week, would you, what would you see? Would you see that my confession of Christ looks like devotion to Christ? Imperfect. Imperfect, but still, it would be obvious that the things that I do, even when I sin, I go to repent. I go to ask forgiveness of others. I, I'm trying to share the gospel. I'm using my money certain ways. Or, or would it be, wow, yeah, you say you believe in Jesus, but it, you look at your life and you're devoted to everything else but him. That is not Christianity. That is not Christianity. That is the false prophet weaving his lies and people just, just biting it and swallowing it hook, line, and sinker. He wants to deceive and convince people that God's priority is to make you happy and healthy and prosperous by blessing you with everything in creation instead of blessing you with himself as creator. And to get you to devote your entire life, devote your money and your time and your energy into getting all of your idols. I mean, think about it. Think about, oh my goodness, I, for years, as a teenager, baseball, I had a confessional, confessional belief in Jesus, but my functional belief was that baseball was, was going to pay my way to the future. Baseball was going to make me liked and adored. That didn't happen. Um, baseball was going to give me, I was going to make it to the show, which is just baseball language for making it to the big leagues. Um, I gave my time. I didn't date girls because I didn't want to dis be distracted from baseball. My dad, it got so bad, my dad sat me down because my friends would bring their girlfriends to my dad's house. And, um, and he one day sat me down and said, son, everybody else brings their girlfriends to come and meet me and see me and you just come by yourself. Are you okay? He says... I said, yeah, oh, dad, yes, I'm okay, I'm okay. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm just devoted to baseball. I got to go to bed early on Friday nights because the doubleheaders on Saturdays and all this. And my dad, 
My dad looks at me and he said, son, have you ever tried kissing a baseball? <laughs> My idol was baseball. My dad saw it. I might have had a confessional belief about Jesus. Oh, most of my prayers, though, were, oh, Lord Jesus, if I, if I obey you, can you help me with the double header on Saturday? Oh, it's just so sad. Devote time and money in your thoughts. When you have discretionary thoughts, what do they go to? That's a, that's a good litmus test. That, man, when, I, when I'm free to think about anything, where do I go? Do I go to worship of Christ or do I go to, to worship of my idols? Essentially, the false prophet offers a prosperity gospel. Just, I don't know how to say it any other way. It's a gospel of self-satisfaction and not self-denial. It's a gospel that glorifies man and not God. It's a gospel in which you take up your happiness rather than taking up the cross to follow Jesus. And because you are more enslaved by your love of idols, that's a false prophet. Let me get you ensnared. Let me get you believing that your idol is going to give you life. So he just keeps fanning those flames. That's his main mission. So the more he can get you to be following a Christless religion or Christ-hating, immorality, legislating government or in in academic institutions, um, all of them promising that they can provide you with your idols as long as you devote yourself to their laws and values. It's a setup, isn't it? Getting people to mindlessly or fearfully devote themselves to the dictatorial rule of a government or institution doesn't happen overnight. I mean, so a lot of us would go, I don't know, worship like like king? First of all, go back through world history. That's a common occurrence, worshiping human kings. Oh, but we're, see, I just... I think we have this arrogant blindness in our country. That could never happen here. The strategy from the false prophet is to be kind enough and deceptive enough to get you not to be as discerning, to let your guard down, to define love as being tolerant of every sort of lifestyle. Oh, listen, don't. No, 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 no. You're being, listen, you're not being loving. You need to be tolerant of all these people. To promise you everything you want so that you're more prone to give your entire devotion, devotion to institutions and governments. And even if it must mean that you have to renounce past values or confessions, particularly Jesus. So, Revelation 14, you you saw when we read Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Listen, I, I, you know, I unfortunately had a prolonged season of alcohol abuse, and you don't go from, from a sip of a beer to just seconds later making some of the worst decisions of your life. It's a process of inebriation, isn't it? It's a process of your inhibitions being lowered. And that's very much like what sin and temptation tries to do. That's very much the the strategy of the false prophet. 
this is the path. You could, you could say, you could call this, this is a path to deconstruction, whether you want to look at deconstruction politically or academically or morally or spiritually. It's nothing new. Jesus said that you've heard that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've lusted with your eyes, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Do you see what he's saying? Listen, don't, oh, oh, there's so many things that I get so aggravated, things that I've heard or things that I've thought or believed. I remember talking to a Christian brother who is married and, and, and we're talking and I'm watching him and we're, while we're eating, you know, and a, a, a woman would pass by and his eyes would leave mine and they would go and they'd, they'd look at the, at the woman and then they come back to mine and then they go a second time and it happened three different times. And finally, I just called him for it. I said, bro, I'm sorry, I don't, listen, I don't claim to know what's going on inside of your heart. But it's obvious you're not that interested in what we're talking about because the last three women that have passed our, our, our table, you've looked two or three times at in a lingering way. What's happening? And he says, well, he's a married guy. Well, just because I've ordered doesn't mean I can't look at the menu. Those are the times I'd like to slap somebody. It's just a little lust. Do you know that there's an agenda? And the agenda is to wear you down. The agenda of lust is not to stay small. It's not going to, it's just a little lust. And you know what? It's just going to stay a little lust. <laughs> That's good. I can handle just a little lust. No, the agenda of lust is to deconstruct your values and your vision of Jesus and all of these things to get you all the way to unfaithfulness, to adultery. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, a man who falls into adultery never falls far. Why? Because he's been leaning that way for years. My brothers, if, if this is striking too close to your heart, boy, you're not... Listen, We'd love to come alongside you and, and do a rescue mission. That was an issue for me growing up, a battle for me, that whole issue of lust. And well, well you see, that's what this that's how the false prophet worked. I'm just trying to let you see behind what he does and how he deceives and his his strategies. The agenda of sin and Satan is small compromises made spiritually and morally. Because of your love for idols that will ultimately bring you into what is absolute rejection of being in a covenantal relationship with Christ in favor of joining yourself to someone who you think can better provide you with a life of endless happiness. That's just how it works. The threat of persecution and oppression for non-compliance and the power of deception and seduction, they're formidable. And they're going to impact all kinds of people. And that's what verse 16 is talking about. The, the, the powerful and the weak, the great and the small. It, it, no one is immune from this. And it'll, be, it'll, it'll come to a place where you're going to have to publicly declare your devotion. You're going to have to publicly declare your loyalty, especially the more godless, the more Christless. Actually, and it's not even just that, because there have been all kinds of godless, Christless governments. But the more they move toward hating the church, the more they move toward, toward detesting the church, seeing the church as the problem with culture. You're, listen, if you're listening, you should, you're hearing that. 
The United States would be way better off if it weren't for all these fundamentalist Christians. Well, all the, which I'm not recommending fundamentalism. I'm, I'm just saying it's just the way that the world sees and thinks. And it'll come down to having to make a public declaration of loyalty and devotion and commitment to idolatry and your dependence upon fallen man and earthly governments and institutions and Christless religion and man-centered morals uh, or your loyalty, devotion, and commitment to Christ. It's going to come down to that. It's going to, you're going to have to publicly show your cards. That's, that's kind of what this, this is setting up here in, in Revelation. And I just, you know, just try to, I try to be, so navigate the whole political realm carefully. But listen, and I'm going to use names here just because I think it'll strike closer to home and grab our hearts a little bit more. But, but listen, if you, if you just are daily angry at Biden and, and you're just going, oh, man, I can't wait to the midterms and I can't wait to the next presidential election. We got to get that guy out of there. If you're a Republican here, you, I mean, if you're a Democrat here, you are so welcome. We welcome you. We want to point you to Jesus. We want to point Republicans to Jesus. We want to point independents to Jesus, okay? So I'm not, I'm not bashing the Democratic Party. What I'm trying to get us to be thinking about is, and your thought is that, wow, you know, if we can get a Republican in office, happy days are here again. The sky above is clear again. Na, 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 na. I think, I think that, 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 oh, Christian nationalists, I don't know what you want to call them. I think that people would sing more heartfelt praise at the entrance of a Republican president than they would at the entrance of Jesus himself. There's something, guys, so just so we'll think, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the Democrats. That's D, Democrat darkness. Oh, hey, no, no. Republican. Oh, I just thought some R words, but I couldn't use those. Um, it just, it, are you trusting in man? Is that what I'm, are you getting what I'm trying to say? Are you trusting in man for your future and your security? And no, you see, that's, but this is the way the false prophet works. So here comes this public declaration of devotion, and it's to self. It's devotion to self. It's devotion to the world. It's devotion to Satan, and it's here referred to as a mark on the right hand or forehead. This is a mockery, and it's a counterfeit of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. That's in your notes. Let's go read it quickly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The key, key things right here at the beginning. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's the main point of the text. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Greg Beale gave a great one sentence a definition of that. And that's in your notes too. He said the forehead represents ideological commitment and the hand, the practical outworking of that commitment. The, 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 the law on the forehead and on the hand was never the saving moment. It was just expressing outwardly the mark, how you were already marked by the love of God inwardly. So be thinking of how I said that. These things were, were not, oh, I'm going to put on the, oh, man, my brain, my memory. I can't remember. What, is it, what are they called? What's the? 
the phylactery. Phylactery. I'm, I'm going to put on the phylactery, and suddenly I'm a lover of God. No, no, no. No, you're already a lover of God, and that love fills your thoughts, and it directs your actions. That's going to be important to remember as we keep marching forward here. So the mark of the beast is to be cons- that is to be concerned about here is not a literal mark on your hand or forehead. It's not a mark that can be seen by the human eye. Now, don't look. Some of you are going, oh, I've never heard this before. I, I know. Um, I'm, I'm coming back to technology. I'm coming back to all that stuff, the internet. Now, I'm going to come back to that. But the mark that's being spoken of here is an outward expression of an inward condition. It's an outward expression of an inward condition. It, it's, it, then we go, when we turn it to 14, it's not, when we look at the mark of the lamb on the 144,000, that, that, that the, the name of the Lord and of Jesus is on the foreheads of all the believers for eternity. Is that a literal mark? No. It's that they're owned by him. They're kept by him. He's, he paid a blood price for them. They are his people and he is their God. It, it, it's reflecting what they're made of, what's on the inside of them. Not a literal mark. It's a sign of ownership, of being redeemed for God by the blood of the Lamb. It speaks of who you most love and worship and follow. Anyone, if, so if you worship anyone else or anything else other than Jesus, that's where the mark of the beast comes from. Being dead in sin and transgression is what brings the mark of the beast. You are owned at that moment by sin and Satan. Well, let's, is there, are there other passages that confirm this? Well, look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did you see that? When you were dead in sin... You walked according to the world and you were dominated by the prince of the power of the air. You were marked by him. You were owned by him. Jesus, remember when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, he said, you're, you're of your father the devil. Quit saying that your father is God. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Maybe this will simplify it. Those dead in sin and rejecting Jesus or those made alive by God and trusting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's the only two kinds of people in the world. And so there are only two marks of ownership. You're either marked by the beast because you're dead in sin and transgression or you're marked by the lamb because you're saved by amazing grace through faith in Jesus and what he did at the cross. I fear this has been taught as though your heart were somehow neutral. <laughs> that, that I'm just, you know, have you ever been this way? Maybe if you're a Christian and, and you kind of freak out about end times things because you're going, oh my gosh, is the virus the mark? I mean, is the, is the, um, is the vaccine the mark of the beast? What if I take the vaccine? Wait, if I take the vaccine, does that mean I have the mark of the beast? Uh, and does that mean I'm doomed to hell? Oh my goodness. There's just two conditions in humanity, dead in sin 
And in that deadness of sin, you live for what the devil lives for. Your values are going to resonate with his values because you're an unbeliever. You're a rejecter of Jesus. Though, so, I, you, could, so you could put it this way. Do you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior this morning? And I hope most of you do. I'm sure that in a room this, with this many people that there are some of you that don't. If you know Jesus, you have the mark of the Lamb that will never be wiped away. If you don't know Jesus, and so it may be a kind of a shock statement, you have the mark of the beast. You, right now, are marked by the beast. You have rejected to this point. Now, good news, the blood of Jesus can wash that mark away. It can wash that mark away, making you alive together with God and Christ. A new creation, a heartbeat that, that longs for his glory and to become more like him and to live on mission for him. But there's, that's the only two people that are in the world. And if you're an unbeliever, here's where it gets, you know, dicey. Now, can, can the world, and it seems like the scripture is saying that, and history confirms this. Can the world use governmental pressure? Can the world use manipulation and all those things? To bring you to a place of you've got to declare here. You, you've been quiet about what you believe far too long. And, and listen, and listen, the government may come to a place that says you've got to declare your loyalty. Are you going to abide by uh, the sexual, the, 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 the gender, the transgender agenda? <laughs> transgender agenda. That's the West Texas way of saying it. Um, are you going to agree? that uh, abortion is always a woman's right. You can see all these things, right? That you've, you're going to have to come to a place of affirming our values and our laws. And if you don't, we're going to hit you in the pocketbook. I, I don't know what that would look like. Guys, it's not, it doesn't take hardly any imagination to see how connected we are with the internet. It would take really, I guess, a few clicks of somebody's keyboard to start doing some real, real stuff to a Christian who, who will not, I'm trying to think of, uh, who was it, Hobby Lobby, that wouldn't support with their health care um, abortion. You saw what the government did to them? It, it will not be unlikely that the government does things to get people to declare their loyalty and, and just reveal their sinful heart and condition in being devoted to humanity, fallen humanity, or to, to come forward and to say, by amazing grace, I'm a child of God. And in honor of him, I will walk in his ways. And I won't bow to the idol. I'm not going to bow down. Like they did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to bow down. I know, again, here's where I think sometimes our Texas heritage can get, make things a little complicated. Because I think our, we have this reaction is, so what do we do? We become beast hunters. Yeah, that's a Texas thing to do. You know how the scripture says we overcome not loving our lives even unto death. We lay down our lives for our convictions. 
We lay down our lives so that other people can see. We don't want you to die in, in your sin. We don't want you to die with the mark of the beast on you. That's the only time, I guess, that I could say that the mark of the beast becomes indelible. It's inerasable because you've, you've maintained your rejection of Jesus with your last breath. And it, but it'll be your, your depravity, it'll be your sinful heart that sends you to judgment, not a computer chip in your hand. Are you with me? This is why this book has been relevant since the first century until now. Because Rome was a beast. Nero was a beast. We've studied that, that you couldn't get a job unless you, were, you, you joined these guilds, these work guilds, and you had to worship their idols. You couldn't get a job. You were shut out from, the, from uh, raising a, uh, earning a living. So I hope this is starting to make some sense to you. We could definitely face huge persecution but, but what the government asks you to sign, or I don't know, who knows what they'll do about getting you to publicly declare yourself, that is not what damns you. What damns you is rejecting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's what damns you. And I beg of you, turn from your sin and place saving faith in Jesus. Please, please. And then what's the mark? What's the, the, what's the 666 about? Well, um, God wants to give us wisdom so we can see through all of the, the, the satanic counterfeits regardless of how good they get. And I think that's where this 666 is coming from. The word is gematria. It's, 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 a, it's that there's letters that correspond to numbers. And your name could be, then be added up to, um, to a, your name could be added up to a number. So it could seem like the text is saying the beast could be known if his name matches up with the number 666. And that may have been the case in the early church with the beast being identified as Nero, Nero Caesar. There, there's a way to get it to add up to 666 on the basis, but it's on the basis of a Hebrew transliteration from Greek and Latin. So there's some, some, some gymnastics that you got to do to do it, but it's possible. And I think Nero probably was a representative of the beast back in, in that time, in his persecution of the church. But there's, there's confusion. There's some people say, well, that, there's not a specific understanding of the exact Hebrew spelling of Caesar. Uh, and it doesn't fit the fact that most of John's readers were largely Greek-speaking. And so that, there's some problems there. Uh, looking for precise literal meanings in numbers is not how numbers are reviewed in Revelation. Seven churches, 24 elders, 144,000, um, countless people since the first century are said to have, have their names added up to 666. That included Hitler and Henry Kissinger and Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan and many popes and Prince Charles. That's a head shaker. Prince Charles, it looks like, a, like a, a little breeze could knock him over. I mean, you know, I don't mean, if anybody's in England watching today. <laughs> we can't rely on a key being found that fits a lock if the lock can be opened by a thousand different keys. So it's, it's like, hmm, if, if a thousand people could fit that description of 666, that their name would add up to it, is it really... The, the, the way God would pastor our hearts. I think John is calling us to have spiritual and moral discernment. 
that Satan will try to produce the best counterfeit possible in government and religion. 777, we could say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know the seven symbolism of Revelation is, is perfection and completeness. So 666 would be the best that a man can be apart from God. Always falling short of God, regardless of how hard he tries. John's not calling us to have wisdom to solve a math problem that unbelievers could solve too, if they just understood the, the, uh, the mathematics of it. Greg Beale puts it this way, the admonition here is wisdom teaches that believers are to be aware of compromise, not just with a historical individual such as Nero, but with all the facets of state throughout the course of history, insofar as it colludes with religious and economic and social aspects of the idolatrous culture, all of which epitomize fallen humanity. That's why we need wisdom is to recognize the counterfeits and take a stand against them with the gospel being preached. So there's a mission. There's this marking by the Lamb in chapter 14, 1 through 13. And we see in, in verse 1, there's 144,000 on Mount Zion. You kind of really see here the picture of new heavens and new earth. I'm not going to go into that a ton because Alan preached an excellent sermon. You go back in the message from Revelation 7 about the 144,000. Uh, but this says their, the name of the Lamb and God is on their foreheads. Regardless of the persecution, even if they must die for their faith, even if they have to take a stand, even if they can't buy and sell, this, do you see where he takes them? He says, don't despair. Look at eternity. I'm going to take, take you from the pain of your present, and I'm going to have you look at a promise. Not one person will be lost. Not one believer will be left behind. They're all there. They're all there worshiping the Lord. Regardless of the persecution they faced, eternity and joy in Jesus' presence is theirs. And there's this deafening sound of praise, harpists playing, a new worship love, uh, song of worship being sung of rescue and redemption. And Jesus being worshiped with all their hearts for everything that he is and everything that he He's done. But then the text, I think, says, as it gives us that glimpse of heaven, but then it says, okay, but we're not in heaven yet. So this is how, this is really, here's how I want to send you out of here. We're not in heaven yet. And so he really changes the tone into mission, almost a soldier of the Lord kind of a, a view. We're not in heaven yet. It describes hundred in, in chapter 7, the 144,000 who were sealed were, were added up. They were, they were counted as a census would be counted. Well, in the Old Testament, a census was taken by a king who was preparing for battle and preparing his troops to go in to battle. So there's a battle motif here. Our call, is to, as people marked by the Lamb, is to live now on mission for the Lamb. What does it mean not to be defiled with women? It's not a reference to being physically celibate. Um, you remember the story of Uriah when, when David sinned against Bathsheba and got her pregnant. Uriah comes home. He brings Uriah home. He's, a, he's supposed to be fighting a war. David says, oh, take a break. Have, have a nice break home. Go and be with your wife, hoping that they'll have relations. And then there's no DNA tests. So, so of course, well, it's Uriah and Bathsheba's baby. And Uriah, remember what we said about him? He wouldn't do it. Why? Because he was devoted to the, to the war that was being fought. And at that time, he was refraining from those pleasures so he could stay focused. David gets him drunk. He still won't go. 
the, the, the one author said that he was a better man drunk than David was sober. Oh, he was, he, you see, that's the, that's the heartbeat. That, that, that praise God for all of his blessings. But he's also called us to be focused. He's also called us to be single-minded. To fix our eyes on Jesus and on Jesus' mission. That's what's going on here. It's, it's this sense of, of stirring us up by way of reminder to go into this mission field of deception and persecution, rescuing people from their sin and from the mark of the beast that they carry because they're still dead in sin. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Doesn't that sound like a military, like they're on mission. They're on march with the Lord. Verse 5 says there's no lie in their mouth. They're truth tellers. Really, that's just an expression of saying the gospel fills what they say. The saving gospel of Jesus fills what they say. Verse 6, an angel is flying overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to every nation, tribe, language, and people. There's divine power. Listen, just so in case you still feel a little shy. Oh man, I'm just not very good at words and I get nervous to share the gospel. This is a picture, I think, of God saying, you're not alone when, I'm, when you're sharing the gospel. You have divine help. I think that's what this angel is representing. There may be some other things there, but I think if nothing else, it's God saying, I'm not calling you into this mission by that you could just go there in the strength of yourself. I want you to mount up with wings as eagles to run and not grow weary. Sometimes we think that's just living life. It's about living on mission for Jesus. I want you to run and not grow weary of telling people the saving gospel of Christ. That's what he's doing here. Fear God and give him glory. Guys, it's, listen, I think we bring people to the commandments of God so that, that they could recognize how sinful their hearts are and how many ways they disobey him. But it's not just their disobedience that's a main issue. The main issue is they don't fear the Lord. We sin because we don't fear the Lord. One analogy somebody gave, you've, you've heard the, the scripture that talks about if you've broken one command, you've broken them all. And you might go, that's not fair. <laughs> Come on. I did eight of ten. Can I get a discount or something on judgment? What's the deal here? Yeah, man, famous West Texas, Rock Chip City, right? We're driving. Man, I just saw many more going on the oil field roads. I just, I'm pessimistic. I can be Eeyore. Here comes another Rock Chip. And I mean, it's just... But isn't it amazing that that one raw can make a, make a mark on the windshield, but often if you don't do something about it, it doesn't just stay that right there. It doesn't make it just a hole. What does it do? And that's, I think, what it's like to not fear the Lord. You sin once. What you're saying is, this is what I think of God. You're, this is an area you're not worth obeying. This is an area you're not worth trusting. I know better. I'm smarter than you. That's why this, it's, it's an attitude about God himself. That's why they're all broken. So he's saying, fear God, give him glory. And why such urgency? Because he says the hour of his judgment has come. He goes on and we talked about Babylon falling. And that's just a reminder, I think, in our evangelism to tell people the things you're trusting in, the people you're trusting in, the kingdoms you're trusting are all going to fall. They're not going to satisfy your heart. And then it goes on to say that those who rejected Christ are marked by the beast 
They drink the cup of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup. And that's so sad because somebody else drank the full cup before they did. And that was Jesus. I think that's what we have to tell people. There will be a full expression of God's just judgment on any unrepentant person who dies in their sinful unrepentance. But someone else drank the cup so you wouldn't have to. He drank the cup of God's wrath dry so you could be completely forgiven and adopted and loved forever. That's what we got to tell people. He goes further with the talk about the eternal nature of judgment. Um, You know, let me just kind of toss this out. I think some people struggle with eternal punishment. It's, it's what sinning against an eternal God deserves. That's justice. He's not a finite God. You've sinned against an eternal God. But do you think somehow, have you ever had this thought that somebody dies without Christ and they're facing, they're in judgment, they're in hell. Do you somehow get this idea that somehow in hell they change? Somehow in hell they're going, Oh, I was an idiot. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. The nature they had on earth is the nature they have for eternity. They're going to continue thinking they're right. They're going to continue putting their fist up in his face. Essentially, I think you could say they're going to continue suffering because they're going to continue sinning. Did you notice it says that it's in the Lamb's presence? Did anyone notice that? Hell is, the, hell is the absence of Christ in his saving mercy. But it's the presence of Christ in his just judgment. Heaven, you'll experience the full love and mercy of God because you'll have Christ as your mediator. Hell, you'll experience the full wrath of God because you don't have Christ as your mediator. And that's what brings us to the the conclusion that there is a harvest. There's a harvest of all believers. Not one will be lost. All will be saved. And that harvest, you notice the, the sick, they're waiting for the time. When is the time that the sickle will come? It'll be the time when people from every tongue, tribe, race, and nation, that there's representatives around the throne of God's grace because people have been saved from every ethnicity. That's the time when the sickle will come and the harvest of God's people will be finished. Great news, isn't it? But it's scary news. That if you reject him, there's the wine press of God's wrath. And I want you to just, I I don't want you most to be affected by the picture of 200 miles of blood that I, I'm probably, I don't, I'm such a short guy. I think the bridle of a horse probably like is maybe top of my head. So can you picture blood extending out in a radius of 200 miles, which really was the known world at that time, meaning that there's no one escapes judgment who rejects Jesus. And it's a righteous judgment and it's a righteous wrath. But I don't want you to be most affected by that judgment. 
it's also interesting that when Jesus was crucified, he was taken outside the gate. So for those who, who say, I'm not repenting, I, I love the darkness, I, I just want to, I, I love the darkness, I don't want the light, and God just says, okay, for eternity, I'm going to give you what you want. And it's a righteous wrath that's undiluted. And it's being done outside the city. I think that's meant to point us back to the gospel. Because there was an even greater supply of blood. And when Jesus hung on the cross outside the city gates of Jerusalem, he died, I think you could say, as though he were the worst sinner ever. Not just because he had my sins, but because he bore the sins of every believer. Jesus bore a wrath that no one else will ever bear. He bore more wrath and judgment than anyone will ever bear in hell. So, so he is the wrath-bearing Savior, and he does it because he loves you. He does it because he loves you, and he does it to convince you that there's enough blood to cover all you've done wrong. There's enough blood. I don't know, whatever that secret thing is, you, all of us have that one thing that maybe we haven't even told our spouse, sin that we're so ashamed of, or that we're still kind of secretly entertaining in our hearts, and we think, man, I've been a Christian for I don't know how many years, and I'm still struggling with this, and I don't know, God, can you forgive me? And I think this lesson is teaching us, oh, listen, there's more than enough blood to cover that sin and to change your life because Jesus paid it all. Sing it with me. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Our sins, they were many, but his mercy is. Amen. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. If you, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if, if this struck a chord in you, and you're just realizing, you've, you've defined Christianity as an intellectual belief in Jesus uh, with a life that's really devoted to all of your pursuits of happiness without Jesus. Um, we'd love to talk to you about what genuine salvation is. And it's way better than you can imagine. It's way better than you can imagine. Heavenly Father, we love you and we're so thankful. As frightening as the wine press of your wrath is as sobering as it is. It can't compare to what we saw take place with Jesus on the cross. We are so thankful that we're so thoroughly forgiven, that our sins have been so thoroughly paid for, that our adoption is permanent, and your love will never let us go. So God, we're not in heaven yet. There's a work to do. Help us to live on gospel mission and evangelism more than we've ever done, 
not just because of our personal hope in Jesus, but because our heart weeps at those still dead in sin, and even right now, under your wrath. Please mobilize us. In Jesus' name, amen.